Would you take your scriptures and turn to be to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter. 2 Peter 1, would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. By which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us, through lust. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is above any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Oh, how we love your law, O oh Lord. We meditate on it all day long. Your commands make us wiser than our enemies, for they are ever with us. We have more insight than others, for we meditate on your statutes. We have more understanding than they, for we obey your precepts. We have kept our feet from every evil path so that we might in obey your word. We do not depart from your laws, for you yourself have taught us. How sweet are your words to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouths. We gain understanding from your precepts before we thank you with all our hearts for your word.
In Jesus' name, amen. Peter, in writing his first letter, began with the explanation as to how he knows that Jesus Christ truly came in the flesh. He saw, heard, and touched Jesus. He says he is a first-hand witness to the truth of God coming in the flesh and living for a time among men. He starts this way to, to refute the teaching of a group known as Gnostics. These were men who were well-versed in the teaching of Greek philosophy. They had heard the Christian message and had taken many of its teachings and mixed them with their own. They came up with another gospel, one that was totally false and very dangerous because it led many away from the truth. In this second letter, Peter continues his teaching against such heretics. In the introduction of salutation, he has already made it clear. He is very concerned that all believers hear and grow in their understanding of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is but one place to gain this needed knowledge, and that's from God's Word. The very words Peter writes as an apostle of Jesus Christ are the living words of God. Therefore, as believers, we need to carefully study this second letter to learn of the great dangers we face in this world. This Gnostic gospel is still very much with us today. Some of the charismatic teaching today, such as people as, as Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hager, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, and others, is a modern-day form of Gnosticism. The main thing they want you to believe is you can become God. You can be God in your divine essence. You can confront the devil and manipulate events by your faith because you are becoming more and more divine. Faith to them becomes a force, a force you must learn to use just as God uses. You may at this point be thinking, but isn't that what Peter is saying in these verses, these two verses before us? After all, he says, so that you may participate in the divine nature. Some even translate this to say that we may become God-like. You have to be very careful with this. This is one of those absolutely awesome statements. Peter clearly means to say that believers are partakers of the divine nature. Yes, this means they are to become like God. All Christians are to live a life imitating God. Thus, they are to live a God-like life. What is a Christian? Is he one who is born to the right parents? Is he one who undergoes infant baptism? Is he one who joins the church? Is he one who is an American at birth? Is he one who lives his life honoring others and helping the needy? No. None of these things make a person a believer. Yes, believers do and are some of these things. To be a true Christian, you must be a person who partakes of the divine nature. You must be a person who is being molded into the image of Jesus Christ. You must be growing in the characteristics of God. This is what Peter says. You are called into. Yes, these things are demanded and expected of everyone who calls themselves a Christian. You do not come to the throne of God with only the belief that he will forgive you. You come as a partaker of his divine character. You come as a new man, a new creation, and you come revealing these changes to all who are around you. 
You come reflecting the glory of the God who has created you and saved you. The God who has called you through election. Your partaking of the divine nature is the reflecting of God's glory. It is not in becoming a God yourself. You were created a man. You will always remain a man. A creature that was created by God. It is blasphemy to try and make yourself God's equal. This is a big part of what Peter is warning about in this letter. Peter wants you to understand the dangers of these false teachers. He also wants you well enough informed of the truth to stop the error some will mix with it. He begins the teaching of this letter with verses 3 and 4. In these two verses, he shows you, first, how all your needs are met. He makes clear the source of the supplies and the means through which they come. Second, he lays before you the great and precious promises that come from the source. He shows you the rewards of holding to these promises and results they produce in the hearts of true believers. In other words, he lays out the foundation of election. When you first look at the Christian life and its requirements of being Christ-like, it's easy to be overwhelmed. How can I, a sinner, live a perfect life? How can I ever accomplish all that the Scriptures require for my salvation? The answer is that I cannot. If salvation is left in the hands of men, then I am absolutely sure no one will ever be saved. The prophet Jeremiah saw this very clearly when he said, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. How can they even find a breath of hope with this kind of statement? Hope is exactly what Peter brings in verse 3. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Some want to argue over who Peter is referring to with the pronoun his in this verse. That seems a bit trivial to me. It refers clearly to the triune God, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For all three are intimately involved in the lives of believers. Clearly, all three are the source of divine power. And it is divine power that is the center of Peter's thoughts. And speaking of this divine power, Peter's talking about the triune God and everything that pertains to the the Godhead. It is God who has, because of his great power, given to us everything we need. It is God who created the bodies in which we live. It is God who breathed the breath, breath of life into our bodies. It is God who sustains our lives each moment. It is God who provided the place in which we live. It is God who has stocked that place with an abundance of every life-giving thing we need. Things such as water and food, material from which we can make shelters and clothing. We have nothing that was not a gift from God. If this is true in the material realm, why would we be so ignorant as to to think that it was also true in the spiritual realm, was not also true in the spiritual realm? We are born into this world in a physical body. We don't put our names on the list asking to be born. We don't come to the conception process working out our own strength to be conceived. 
It all happens apart from our efforts and without our consent. The same is true in the spiritual realm as well. Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2.1 that we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. John tells us in chapter 3 of his gospel that we are then born again into this spiritual life. It is not done with our agreement, or is it even our desire that it occur? It's the work of a sovereign God. Peter makes clear this work is of God alone. He says, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life. Nothing, absolutely nothing in this process of salvation comes from you. All needed comes through him, which means the Trinity, the triune God. God the Father chose you from before the foundation of the world. That's your election. God the Son saves you from your sins by his perfect life, atoning death and resurrection victory. That's your salvation. God the Holy Spirit molds you and guides you to the final place of rest in Jesus Christ. That is your sanctification. Just to make sure you understand this, Peter declares what this divine power he speaks of is doing. It is providing everything you need. Get this, this is very important. He's providing everything you need for life and godliness. God has called you to one thing, to life with him. In a life with him, you must be in perfection. Therefore, he sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life on your behalf. In a life with him, you must not be in sin. Therefore, he sent Jesus Christ to die an atoning death to cleanse you from your sin. In a life with him, you must be pure and free. Therefore, he sent Jesus Christ to defeat all those enemies who would possibly hold you in bondage. Please understand. Eternal life is not just a prize waiting for all who complete the obstacle course of this life. It is a real and ever-present life condition for all who place their complete and undying faith in trust in Jesus Christ. God sent Christ to do for his people what they were totally helpless to do for themselves. He came in an actual body with a true spirit into a tangible world. He suffered irrefutable agonies to deliver a very real people from a terrible and ever-threatening curse. This is all done for you by the divine power of the triune God. Is this not the most wonderful, comforting message you could ever hear? God provides for your every need, be they physical or spiritual. He starts a good work in you, and as Paul says, he does not stop for anything until that good work is complete. Peter is clearly saying that everything you require for salvation has been provided. Remember Paul's declaration in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He also teaches in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. The Apostle John also told us in 1 John 4:19, we love him because he first loved us. There's nothing in our salvation process that is left to chance. God is through Jesus Christ provided everything required of you. 
Jesus came to do what you could never do, and that was first to live the perfect life. The scripture repeatedly calls you to be obedient to God's word. That was the first command ever given to man. Adam was told to obey God and not eat of the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. He disobeyed, and man has not stopped being disobedient since. This one act of disobedience plunged all of mankind into a state of spiritual death and left them without hope. The only hope possible had to come from God and from God himself. He gave that hope and the promise he would send one to do for man what he could never do for himself. Jesus also was sent to be a revelation of mankind to mankind of the plan of redemption God was sending him, sending him to him, sending in him. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 explains. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. He says he has in these last days spoken to all by his son, the one he appointed heir of all things. The very one that created the world. The one that is the brightness of his glory. The one who is the very image of God's person the one who is holding all things by the word of his power. Then he purged all our sins, and when he had finished, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, we hear from the author of Hebrews that it is God who has provided everything. And through whom was it provided? It comes to us through Jesus Christ. It continues to come through Christ, who is the sitting at the Father's right hand, speaking on our behalf constantly. The means through which we are made into children of the living God is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It is Christ who lived the perfect life. It is also Christ Jesus who are living that perfect life, laid it on God's altar as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all the Father gave him. Jesus offered his life on your behalf. As long as there is sin in your life, you will never come into the presence of God. Heaven's door will be bolted from the inside. You will have absolutely no hope of entering its walls. You cannot batter those walls down with good deeds. You cannot scale those walls with ropes woven from personal piety. You cannot pick the lock with acts of kindness. You cannot talk your way past God's guards with super intelligent debating techniques. The only way The only one way to enter those gates, and it is to be covered in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Peter says to have assurance of this wonderful provision, it must come through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. What a statement. Through our knowledge. That's a strong statement. Knowledge is so very important, and Peter wants you to understand the role it plays in the wonderful work of salvation. Yes, yes, God provides everything you need to be saved. He gives the new heart and new spirit and his Holy Spirit. He gives his word and the gifts of faith and repentance, but you do have a responsibility. You must hear the word to activate the faith. You must believe on Jesus Christ. What is it you hear? You hear about the wonderful things God has done and respond to him, not out of obligation, but out of love and appreciation. 
God provides continually, and he forgets nothing of the things you need. He is a God of love, grace, and mercy. He forgives and restores and makes new those things which are soiled and rotten. Why does he do all this? Why does he reach down in the gutter and take a sinner like me from the filth and give them a crown and a place of honor at his table? Why does he call me to come to his banquet? Because it is his nature to call. He calls those who are unworthy and makes them worthy of his own glory. He restores and saves because of his goodness. There is no other like our God. He looked down and saw my sin and had pity on me. He opened his heart and loved me when I was anything but lovable. I pray that you can see and know that it is in the triune God, the one and only true and living God, whose name is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This God is the source of all you need in this life. He is the one and only means through which you receive all of these wonderful gifts that you in no way could ever earn or purchase, much less deserve. There could, should be no greater source of joy to the believer than to recognize that his salvation is not in his hands, but in the hands of his sovereign Lord. You're not being weighed to determine if your good works outweigh your bad works. And for this, you should be eternally thankful. Jesus was sent to accomplish all the good works required for your salvation. It is his works that are weighed and found sufficient to save all who believe in him alone. I know I speak of this often. I hope you're beginning to see that it is found throughout the scripture. There's not one book of the Bible that does not in some way bring this out. Why? Because it is the truth. Your salvation is grounded upon. You are the elect of God. In verse 4, Peter speaks of the promises God has made to his people. By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Two things. Two things that stand out here. First, the rewards. The rewards given those who trust in Christ for their salvation. And then second, the results. The results following the rewards in your life. Through his glory and his goodness, God has given to all who are his some very great and precious promises. He has promised that all who see their sin in his holiness will also see glory. They will see he provided a Savior, and they will be enabled to call out to that Savior with a broken and contrite heart. He will hear and will save them. He promises if you confess your sins, he will be faithful and just and forgive you. He also promises he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He promises that you will never be left alone. He will send you a comfort of the Holy Spirit. He promises once you have the Holy Spirit, you have his guarantee. These promises will be completely fulfilled. He promises Christ in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is making a place for all who trust in him. He promises Jesus will let the appropriate time come back. And gather his people together and make them to be eternally with he and the Father. He also promises many other things. And all as equally wonderful as the aforementioned. 
There are so many that we could not even name them all in the short time we have. But every one of these promises belongs to any and everyone who will hear this gospel message Peter brings and will believe in this Savior, Peter declares. The thing we have already touched on concerning the greatest promise of all, eternal life, is that we are not in a waiting mode for it to come. It is already here. You have it. You are living in it if you are living in these wonderful promises. Paul also expresses this very sentiment in Philippians 1, verses 3 through 6. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says you're not waiting for anything. You have it right now. Yes, it is going to get better and better. And it is guaranteed to get better. But that doesn't in any way mean you do not fully possess all God has promised. At the very moment God opens your heart and changes your spirit, you have all the promises he has made to his people. You have Jesus Christ in your heart, spirit, and body. Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. In Jesus Christ, all of these promises find their perfect fulfillment. For what purpose does God make all these promises? Why did he send Jesus Christ to fulfill all of them? Was it to simply give us eternal life? Not just that. He made the promises and sent Christ in order to fulfill what we call the Emmanuel Principle. The Emmanuel Principle is what covenant theology is founded upon. It is the first promise. I will be your God and you will be my people. How is this going to affect us? It's going to bring us into harmony with the divine nature. It begins by God changing your heart and spirit and giving you his Holy Spirit. It is made possible through the perfect life, atoning death, and resurrection victory of Jesus Christ. Peter very carefully picks his words in speaking of this. Look at the last half of verse 4. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He says that through these you may be partakers. He doesn't say so that you can become God. Look at what follows this of the divine nature. In using the word nature, he, makes, he also makes a statement concerning what you are to become. It indicates you will grow in the characteristics of God. He doesn't say you will take on the divine being of God. There's absolutely no way for you to participate in the essence of God. You cannot become God. Peter is saying you are to participate in the holiness of God. The only way you can do that is explained by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and are not your own? Here's God's purpose. Here's God's purpose in making us partakers of his divine nature as expressed by John Calvin. Let us then mark that the end of the gospel is the, to render us eventually conformable to God and if we may so speak to deify us. In other words, to make us holy as he is holy. 
To be holy is to be like God, but that does not make us God, only God-like. It is through these very great and precious promises obtained in Christ Jesus that we gain God's holiness. It is God himself that calls us into this holiness and delivers us into fellowship with him. This is what the Apostle John said in 1 John 1, 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What is the promise of entering this fellowship? That by fixing our attention on Jesus Christ and on him alone, we will share in the heavenly calling and in our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 3.1 Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 3.14 For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This gives undeniable proof. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. This is the foundation of election. The last statement in 2 Peter 1.4 says, Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is assurance that this promise of eternal life is not in the future, but right now. As you reflect the virtues of God in your life, you're escaping the evil desires of this world. You're showing your love and appreciation for all Christ has done for you by doing for your best to shun the evil of this world. Yes, it will only be made complete in your life at your entrance into glory. But it is very much a part of every believer's life in this world. Paul called you in Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new man which is, was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now in conclusion, I trust you can see the foundation of election in this passage. It is the promises of God and those promises are fulfilled by God the Son on the behalf of all God has called. Salvation is the work of God and that's what makes it so precious to everyone called into it. If it could be purchased or earned by man on his own, how common would it become? It would be as cheap as a man standing up and declaring himself holy. Holiness is far too great a characteristic to be used in such a way. Job, who was considered by God to be a righteous man, thought you could simply declare your holiness before God and he would have to listen. Job said in Job 23, 7, There an upright man could present his case before God, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. But once God spoke to Job, once he declared the greatness of his works, Job could but bow down and say as he did in Job 40, verse 4, I am vile, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Please, hear this if you hear nothing else this morning. Salvation is the work of God and God alone. You have nothing to do but respond with thanksgiving for the blessing of eternal life. How do you respond? With a desire to live a holy life by putting off the old man and putting on the new man, conceived in the heart of God and dedicated to reflecting his glory. You can come to this place only through the election of God. You can sustain it only by Christ's sacrifice. 
You can grow in it only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let the grace of God open your heart and mind. Give everything over to his electing love. This shows that your election is founded on the promises of God. Those promises made before the creation of the world. Without those promises, there would be nothing to be elected to. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, you have given us a sign of the redemption you shall provide. The virgin will be with child and shall give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You sent him, Father, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is how we can recognize your spirit. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from you, O Lord. Receive us in his name. Grant us your grace. Help our faith to grow. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.